your mental health hour. Mind Matters on the Light Breakfast. And on Mind Matters, uh, today we've got Dr. Philip George, clinical psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist from IMU. Good morning, Dr. Philip. Good morning, Shaz. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> That's good. You know, this entire week we are looking at homelessness and mm. uh, what happens to someone psychologically when they become dispossessed and end up on the street? Yeah, so actually one of my colleagues did a study on homelessness in Malaysia and found that about 40% of them actually have psychological disorders and they are most often not treated, not attended. But yeah, homelessness affects thousands in Malaysia and most of the roots are really in poverty and social exclusion. So people have been marginalized or people Mm -hmm. who lost jobs or had injuries or illnesses or suffering from some disease. Uh, These are some of the more common causes. Uh, Some may be due to migration, you know, rural, urban migration and then being displaced or some even due to trauma. But it has a huge impact on not just mental health, but also physical health. And, you know, they're both correlated. So poor physical health is, of course, going to affect, you know, their mental health as well. But rates of mental illness in most studies have suggested it to be double or triple the general population. And about half of them actually have depression. In -hmm. fact, most women who are homeless have shown to be scoring very high on depressive scores. Poorer physical health increases the risk of tuberculosis and HIV, hypertension, asthma, sexually transmitted diseases, which all have a close link with mental Mm -hmm. health problems as well. And of course, substance use may be higher among them who are marginalized as well. Right. What would be the best way to help someone who's living on the streets? I mean, we do have NGOs who are helping to feed them with the soup kitchens and whatnot, but what can we do? Well, I think the important thing is to know that not one size fits all. Yeah. It's uh, you need to stratify the population. They may have basic needs which I think a lot of the soup kitchens are attending to. Mm-hmm. And those basic needs are essential in the community. If you don't actually provide them, you're not actually going to be able to support them to get to the next level. So there is a first level and that's first the basic needs. So there is the emergency aspect to someone who's uh, homeless, you know, they need to look at maybe transitional or permanent housing, but they need to look for safety and there has to be adequate funding for this. So, you know, developed countries have sheltered places where homeless can live and not just on the five-foot pathway. Mm -hmm. Then you need to look at, you know, things like food, clothing, toileting, uh, and also medical and mental health services as well. But I think the important thing is maybe emphasis placed on prevention. Too little is done about prevention. I mean, Take example, aging people with no savings, no EPF, Mm -hmm. or even, you know, mentally ill who can't get services, they they can't get into seeing or getting help, or the LGBT or the marginalized people, or even those who are drug dependent. So prevention can include employment training, you know, supplements for rent and maybe case management for complicated cases, addiction Mm -hmm. services, and mental health care. And, you know, the list just goes on. All right. Well, I'm looking at a BBC health article, and it's a very interesting one. The big headline is, Did I Inherit Loneliness Mm. from My Mom? You know, the way we inherit our eye color and our hair color. um, Some people have wondered whether loneliness um, playing a part in their lives was related to, you know, either a parent. Mm. Well, actually... Loneliness can be a symptom of a personality trait. So there are personality traits like schizoid personality or, you know, the typical introverted person, the loner, that can be inherited. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are loners 
are not necessarily lonely. Yes, that's true. And they feel comfortable in that sense. So really, loneliness is an unpleasant emotional response to isolation, which is very different from being a loner. Or wanting to be a loner or being yeah. Uh, introverted. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Typically, with loneliness, it includes anxious feelings about the lack of connection or communication with others. And it can be a consequence of certain different things that happen in people's lives. So it's not, you know, from birth or, you know, from young, they've always been like this. Mm -hmm. It's a consequence of something that's happened, like a social or psychological or physical state. So, for example, people with chronic depression may develop a physical or, or people with a physical disability mm -hmm. may develop more loneliness because they don't get out and meet people very much. So whether it's heritable, I would say that's questionable. It may be learned. Right. So loneliness can be learned when they grow up in families where perhaps one family member has got a mental health problem or disability mm -hmm. and is not able to mix and then feels that anxiety about not being able to right. interact. That can actually be a learned behavior. Okay. So how can you overcome this if that is your reality, that you feel lonely and sad, that you're not interacting or, you know, at the level that you wish to? Well, I think the first step is to remind yourself that it's the mind thing. It is a feeling, not necessarily a fact. So you need to challenge the, the feeling because it may be completely a wrong perception. And so you need to reach out. You know, the common reaction is people don't care about me. They don't mm -hmm. like me. And I'm just going to you know, swallow myself in and get more and more withdrawn. But you need to actually find others like you. Go out to groups, NGOs, I think like per TV, like mm -hmm. you uh, discussed earlier this morning. And, you know, there, there's so many things that you can look at that may take you away from your loneliness. Focus on the needs and feelings of others. Not your own for a while. And then, of course, fill in the rest of the day when you are lonely with activities that you can do yourself. I mean, pick that you know puzzle that you kept aside or the book that you've been wanting to read or yeah. the writing that you wanted to put, you put off for a while. Mm -hmm. Make that lonely period something productive as well. It's in your hands to actually move out of being lonely as Wonderful. well. Wonderful. No one likes an office whistler or a pen clicker, but for some people, these noises aren't just a nuisance. They are a full-blown oral assault. And I must say, I do suffer from misophonia myself, mm. okay? It just drives me nuts when people eat noisily yeah. or when they breathe through their mouth or have a nasal thing yeah, you know yeah. or even when my husband whistles at home oh it drives me nuts <laughs> i mean is it a quirk can you overcome this if you are you know afflicted by it yeah i mean i think the positive thing is that you can overcome it misophonia is where noise creates a psychological response or emotional response that's catastrophic that's way beyond what you'd normally expect and typically noise affects us all very differently there's great variation in what people can tolerate and can't tolerate but some of the typical sounds that can trigger off misophonia is you know oral sounds things that are done with the mouth or chewing or eating finger tapping the most common thing is that it's repetitive mm. it, it occurs again and again and one of the factors is the brain filter. So we all have filters for everything we perceive, you know, smells, sounds, sight. And the brain filter for sounds in misophonia may actually show that, you know, a bit more sensitive to things and, you know, create this catastrophic reaction. So some people even develop rage or anger. Oh, I get that when I hear <laughs> whistling. <laughs>
and so disproportionate, people, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And some people may actually have anticipatory anxiety. Mm. So even if it's not happening, they worry that it's yeah. going to be happening. Oh my God, so he's going to whistle soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, it can be managed. And uh, misophonia is usually managed using a multidisciplinary approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means using sound therapies by an audiologist, counseling, which is mainly <laughs> focusing on, <laughs> on coping yeah. strategies. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Actually, there's a device that's like a hearing aid that creates a calming sound in the ear that's actually been shown to be useful for people with misophonia. And of course, lifestyle changes regular exercise even having you know maybe physical changes in your own home or your workplace you have that quiet spot where you can just escape for a little while so you take breaks mm-hmm. and so it doesn't become something that, oh i'm stuck with this i'm suffering and i can't live with it and then the rage and anger and everything else too. Oops. <laughs> just bang my head against the wall <laughs> till i pass out make sure it's a soft wall <laughs> all right well coming up um this is up your alley as um addiction medicine specialist how mm-hmm. Alcohol addition occurs, how the brain learns all about alcohol, you know, like, for example, the bar that people go to drink in, the street Mm. that they're on, the people they're with, these are all triggers I I hear. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. When we treat addiction, we actually talk to them about cues. And cues are things that trigger craving. And cues can be even a WhatsApp message from a friend who typically drinks. Mm. Or, you know, uh, walking by the place where they used to maybe buy their drinks or, you know, buy their drugs from. So these are cues that time people place and people need to know how to, you know, overcome them or find distractions. But I think this study actually suggests why these cues are biologically related to that craving. Mm -hmm. So we used to think it was largely psychological, but now we understand that it's even a biological thing, that some of the substances that they use for a certain period of time can trigger off memory gene problems and changes their memories becomes cued they don't work as you know what they do with people who may not have a dependence problem Mm -hmm. so that can actually then get triggered by these cues and you know then the craving and desire and all builds up and knowing and understanding that we can now look at drugs or medications to try and block those memory genes from being affected and so I, i think it's a real good study but we also know this biology related to the reward pathway we all have a reward pathway in our brain mm-hmm. and these substances actually stimulate the reward oh, pathway yeah and so with that we've actually do have a medication that blunts that reward system it doesn't work for everyone mm-hmm. but i use it in my practice and i find that some patients actually find they can control their cravings right. and desire does that work for food and sugar as well uh, uh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't be this fat if they did. All right. And uh, illiterate people are twice as likely to develop dementia, according to a new study. Researchers studied 983 adults over the age of 65 living in New York City's Washington Heights area who had four or less years of schooling and found out this. So uh, mm. what are your thoughts on this? I don't think it's something completely new. We do know that higher educational attainment is actually associated with better health outcomes Mm -hmm. and when you have better health outcomes it also is a preventive factor for dementia so you know stimulate the brain so that you don't lose it that's sort of similar to what these studies are actually suggesting but in this study it actually suggests that it's completely separate from just higher educational attainment you know people may study for many years and have higher you know levels of uh, education and mm-hmm. all that but if there is some level of illiteracy then that can predict dementia 
it's really the illiteracy that increases the risk of dementia more than the educational level. Mm -hmm. So there are some other studies. There's another study that was done in middle-income countries, and they identified that the ability to read newspapers, the self-reported ability to read newspapers, actually lowered the risk of dementia. And this was a study done in China, Cuba, Mexico, and Peru, so middle-income nations. So I think it's not just about, you know, how much we know, but how much we're reading and keeping in touch and, Mm -hmm. you know, doing all those literate skills, reading, writing, I think they seem to now show to be more preventive for dementia. All right. Well, that's definitely good to know. Well, Dr. Philip, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Mind Matters. Thank you, Shaz.